Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. Don't let that fool you into thinking I'm going to preach all of that, but I'm going to read the whole thing in context. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together, as we consider this Old Testament support, that the author to Hebrews has given for the superiority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ above the angels, above the prophets, above all, because he is your son. As we consider these texts, as we look at your holy word, penned by David, penned by Samuel, penned by the author of Hebrews, by Luke, as we consider what these men wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit, what they wrote concerning your Son and His mediatorial glory, His work on our behalf, what they wrote about things into which angels long to look. Father, we pray that your Son would be exalted, that we would meditate well upon Him that we would understand what it is the Spirit is saying to the church and that we would rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we continue this morning in what is really become a long series of meditations on Jesus. We've been meditating on Jesus since we began in verse 1, and we will continue to meditate on Jesus week by week. My son, as I was going over the sermon a bit with him as we were driving to church, asked me, What are you going to preach on Christmas, given what you're preaching now, about Jesus? And I said, I'm going to continue in Hebrews. Because basically, when I opened Hebrews 1, I started a long Christmas series. A really long one. And the reason we're meditating on Jesus is because 
He is the one whom we need to know. He is the one in whom we need to take refuge. When I was a young pastor, I thought that my job as a preacher was to use the Word of God to convince the people of God to do what God requires of them, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that as a preacher, I take the Word of God and I get you to do what you don't want to do. At some point, by the grace of God, I came to realize that my job as a preacher is not to do that. My job as a preacher is to preach Christ in all of Scripture, to hold Jesus up in front of you, and to let Jesus, by His Spirit, change you so that you do what you do not want to do. You glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so I want to continue in meditating on Christ. It's really all I will ever offer you as a pastor is meditations upon the person and work of Jesus. Hebrews tells us, in fact, that we need to meditate upon him and what we've heard about him. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice what he says. Therefore, after saying all that he said in verses 1 through 14, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must. Notice that it is necessary. It's not, it's a good suggestion. It might be helpful. After you're done thinking through a bunch of principles for living, why don't you tack on thinking about Jesus a little too, right? It's, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Look, Hebrews is a sustained argument for why Jesus is better, why he's superior, why he's greater. And it's easy to quickly lose sight of that. In a moment, you cease meditating upon Jesus and you get distracted by everything else. It's easy to drift away. Our, our hearts and minds are quickly captured by other interests. In the case of those to whom Hebrews was written, they were quickly being captured by the old covenant in the midst of their suffering. They were tempted to return to the law delivered to Moses by the angels. And we might not have the exact same temptation as they have. But we can quickly be captured by worldly interests and drift away. So we must be relentless in our meditation upon Jesus. We come this morning in that relentless pursuit of meditating upon Christ... We come this morning to Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. And in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, we are provided three arguments with seven Old Testament citations which are given to prove the first sentence. The first sentence is verses 1 through 4. Look at what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament revelation that we are about to see fulfilled in the New Testament, which is Christ. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So you have this argument in verses 1 through 4, which is one continuous sentence exalting the Son, who he is, how he's superior. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the angels who delivered messages to the Old Testament prophets. He's better than anyone or anything, for he is himself God. He is our mediator. He is our Messiah, the one who made atonement for our sins, the one who rules and reigns. That's who he is. And he says, now let me give you proof. Let me give you proof that he's better than the angels, that he's superior to the angels. And he gives three arguments. We're going to look at the first argument today. But I want you to see the three arguments in, in succession. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? That starts the first argument. And he's going to have three Old Testament citations in that first argument. First argument. Now look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says. Notice, for which of the angels did God ever say, verse 5? Of the angels, he says, verse 7. That starts 
the second argument, and he's going to have more Old Testament citations. Actually, three more. And then look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said? That begins the third argument. And he's going to have one more Old Testament citation. So you have, um, in the context of verses 5 through 14, three arguments comparing Jesus to the angels, and seven Old Testament citations that are direct Old Testament citations. You also have some allusions and echoes of the Old Testament as well, but the point I want to get at is that these three arguments are laid out to tell you that verses 1 through 4 aren't just suppositions of our author, but they're just not assertions he's making, but he can back them up biblically. And as he backs them up biblically, I want to look at the first argument he makes to back it up, which is in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. And as we look at verses 5 and 6, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see three truths spoken only of Jesus. You hear that? So we're taking the first of three arguments today, and in that first argument, if you will, we have three sub-points, if you will, which are three truths that are spoken only of Jesus. Two of the statements are from the Father directly to Jesus, and one of the statements is made to the angels about Jesus. So three truths about, or spoken only of, Jesus. So I want to look at the first one first. The first one is this. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Hear that. It's the first argument he's making. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. He is eternally begotten of the Father. When did his beginning or begetting begin? In eternity. He always has been begotten of the Father. He always will be begotten of the Father. For that you're learning his, if you will, his relation of origin, he is the Son, the natural Son of the Father. He's always been, in his person, the Son of the Father. Look at what Hebrews 1.5 says. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now the answer is obviously he never said that to any of the angels. But look what he says. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a poetic parallelism. Um, it's, it's saying you are my son and now I want to give a poetic emphasis Describing what kind of son he is. You are my son, my eternally begotten son. In other words, he's not an adopted son. He is a son that is begotten. He is a natural son. He is the one who always has been son. This was never said to any angel. Angels and men are called sons of God or children of God in Scripture. But this is speaking of our being created by him. Christians, those who are trusting in Christ, are called sons of God. But this is speaking of our adoption as sons. Hear the poetic modifier, today I have begotten you, or the poetic parallel, today I have begotten you, is telling us that the son is the natural son. You are my son. What kind of son? The begotten son. The natural son. Now the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2-7 when he says this. And I want to look at Psalm 2-7 together. So why don't you go ahead and turn there to Psalm 2. Keep your hands in Hebrews 1 and turn to Psalm 2. But before you read it or look at it, I want to kind of give you a bit of explanation as we come to this text in Psalm 2. We might call Psalm 2, um, at least portions of Psalm 2, reported speech. In other words, a report of speech that was given or of things that were said. Here's a report of things that have been said. And David is the psalmist, and he is the one reporting what's been said. And it's reported speech, in some cases, of what the Father has spoken before the foundation of the world of the Son. David tells us, I want you to hear this in Psalm 2, because it's sort of one of those things that's going to blow your mind. 
David is reporting to us in this psalm what the Father spoke to the Son before time began. What he spoke to him before the foundation of the world. Think of it this way. David is speaking as a prophet. As he writes the psalm, he is singing prophetically during his own time, which is, let's say, approximately a thousand years before the incarnation of the Son, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, approximately. David is singing this psalm prophetically, and he is reporting what the Father said to the Son in eternity past, and what the Father promised to the Son in the future on the day of his, of his coronation as the Christ. So I want you to hear this. He's reporting two things the Father has said to the Son. One, what the Father said to the Son in eternity past, and two, what the Father promised to the Son at the day of his coronation as the incarnate Christ, the day that the Son ascends to the right hand of the Father and is seated as the King. He's reporting both of those things, both what he said in the past, what the Father said to the past of the Son, and what he's saying in the future or promising to the Son in the future. So let's look at how this works in Psalm 2. First, I want you to see David speaking as himself. In other words, the first thing you hear from David in Psalm 2 is he's speaking in the character of himself. In other words, this is David speaking on behalf of David. Look what he says. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord Yahweh and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, now now before I read the next verse, I want you to pay attention to that. David is speaking in the character of himself about the foolish, pagan, unbelieving nations who were raging against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed king. Now second, David speaks, notice, in the character of the unbelieving nations. So first he's speaking in his own, as, as himself. Now he's going to speak as the unbelieving nations. Look at verse 3. They, he said, saying in the verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in this song, you notice you're getting a kind of drama. First, David is speaking. Why do the nations rage in vain? And then the second character comes in. David, again, is speaking, but he's speaking as the second character. And who's the character he's speaking as? He's speaking as the unbelieving nations. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We, we don't want to be under the, the lordship of this God and his Messiah. Now David's going to change back to himself. He's going to speak as himself again. Look what he says. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Notice what's happening. David actually switches from the unbelieving nations back to himself and says, you think you're going to put yourself out from under the lordship of God and his Christ, the Lord is laughing at you. He's, he's mocking you for your foolishness. He holds you in derision. Verse 5, then he, that is the Lord, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, now notice we just got another change of character. Now David is going to speak in the person of another character. He's going to speak as or in the character of the person of the Father, of Yahweh, of the Lord. Look what he's going to say. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice David is speaking in the person of the Father, and as he is, he places this psalm, the context for this psalm, on the occasion in which the Father announces his king. Announce my king, I've placed him on Zion, my holy hill. That's where David prophetically places this psalm. So in this psalm, David is telling you that he is speaking of that event in which the messianic king takes his throne. The majority of this psalm will be consumed with, the majority of this psalm will be consumed with that day in the future 
when the king, the messianic king, will sit on his throne, where he'll be enthroned as the Lord. And so he's looking forward to that day, speaking of that in the person of the Father. Now, notice David changes characters again. So David spoke, then he spoke for the unbelieving nations, then David spoke again, then he spoke on behalf of the Father. Now he's going to speak as the person of the Son, or in the character of the person of the Son. Look at verse 7. I, that's the Son, I, that's the Son, will tell of the decree. In other words, the decree, what the Father said to me. What the, defa- what the Father decreed. I will tell the decree. The Lord, that there being a reference to the Father, said to me, that being the Son, the Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now what's interesting is that here the Son reports what the Father said to him in eternity past. You say, but I thought you said most of the psalm is focused on the future when the Son will take his messianic throne. Most of the psalm is. But this particular text is referencing eternity past. This is something the Father said to him before David reported it. You guys hear that? Pay attention. He said it to him, the Father said this to the Son, before David reported it, or else David could not report it. You guys follow how that would be? You can't report a speech that didn't happen. Make sense? So the father said this to David before he reported it. And this was said before the declaration that he is now the king set on his holy hill. Look what it says. The Lord said to me. Now in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is in the aorist tense. It's past tense. The Lord said to me in the past. Where? Before David reports it. Minimally, the Lord said to me, notice the next phrase, today I have begotten you. That's in the perfect tense. Also focusing on the fact that it's past tense, but has ongoing consequence or on, if, if you will. So he was begotten in eternity past and he's continually the begotten son of the father. It's eternally the begotten son of the father. It's an eternal declaration about the person of Christ. The father said this to the son before David prophesied it. He called, he said it to him, in the eternal day called today. Using today as a term for eternity, by the way, is not foreign to the biblical use of the word today. In fact, it's not even foreign to the book of Hebrews' use of the word today. Think about how Hebrews uses the word today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so now, it can't mean Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It can't mean that Jesus was the same yesterday, and he's the same today, and he's the same forever, but prior to yesterday and today, we're not quite sure what he was. You follow me on that? It's an idiomatic expression. It's saying something like this. Jesus is the same forever and ever and ever. Further, the Father said this to the Son before his incarnation. Today I've begotten you. Said it to him before his incarnation, before his baptism, before his transfiguration, before his crucifixion, before his resurrection, before his ascension, or before his coronation. He said this to his eternally begotten son. Now, there's more evidence to that. In fact, um, you'll see that when we get to the use of Psalm 110 in a couple of weeks. And the way Psalm 10, uh, 110 Verse 3 references this eternally begotten Son. You saw it if you were here when I got into Proverbs 8. I'm at the earlier part of Hebrews 1. So there's more evidence to this being eternal begottenness, but that's what I'm going to give you for today. Let, let me move to what he's saying. You're my eternally begotten Son. Now David's psalm is going to transition to what the Son who was begotten before all time, begotten from eternity, is now being promised in the future. The eternally begotten Son, listen to what's happening here in Psalm 2, is being designated in this psalm as the mediator, the Christ, the God-man, the one who will rule the nations and save his people. The Father is making a promise to the eternally begotten Son of what the Son will inherit as the incarnate mediator. 
the God who becomes man and dwells among us. As the Messiah, upon his coronation as king, the Father promised to the eternally begotten Son a kingdom. Promised him a kingdom. Look at what David reports, speaking in the character of the person of the Son, or as the Son. Look what he reports, verse 8 and 9. Ask of me, verse 8 of Psalm 2, ask of me. That's the Father speaking to the Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, ask of me, and I will make you the heir of all things. I'll make you the heir of all things. You'll inherit a name that's above all names. Ask of me, and I'll make you that. The Father is saying that to his eternally begotten Son. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you hear what the Father is promising to his eternally begotten Son? Upon the occasion of his coronation as the incarnate king, he is being promised an eternal kingdom. The eternal son will become man. Please follow that. This is what we talk about every Christmas. The eternal son of God will become man. And upon the fulfillment of his mission as Messiah, upon the discharge of his office as mediator, he will inherit a kingdom. He will inherit that kingdom as the incarnate Christ, as the Messiah, a kingdom promised to him in eternity past by the Father. That fits incredibly well with the second truth the author of Hebrews says is spoken only to Jesus. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And look at with me at verse 5 again. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You're my eternally begotten. You are God of God, light of light. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, look at the next phrase, or again, to which, and the or again is, or again, to which of the angels did God ever say? Or again, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's a quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. The Lord promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that his son would be the heir to the throne. It's, we call it the Davidic covenant. The covenant God made with David that his heir would sit on the throne forever. So I want to look at that covenant briefly. Keep your hand there in Hebrews 1 and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So you're going further back in your Old Testament than the Psalms. If you don't know your Old Testament, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, um, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. If you've gotten to 1 Kings or 2 Kings or Chronicles, you've gone too far. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and look at with me uh, verse 8. Now, Nathan the prophet has come to David. And Nathan the prophet is going to speak on behalf of the father, reporting what the father has said to him uh, in covenanting with David. David, if you remember, was now the king of Israel. And David, as the king of Israel, wants to build a temple, a house for the Lord. Wants to build him a house where the Lord can dwell. First, Nathan says, do what's in your heart. It's a good idea. Later, the Lord speaks to Nathan, and Nathan goes to David, and and we're going to read this. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, remember he was a shepherd, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. You'll be their king. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. The Lord is going to make for David a great name. And violent men 
shall afflict them no more as formerly. In other words, the Lord's going to give peace to Israel from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. You'll have peace. I'll make your name great. Look what he says. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I'll build you a house. Now, incidentally, this is going to get picked up in Hebrews chapter 3, where it says Moses is a servant of the house, but Jesus, the son, is the builder of the house. Hebrews 3. But, but notice what it says. I'll make you a house. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's when David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. God promised David that his son... Firstly, historically, Solomon would be in some way God's son, that he would sit on the throne forever and rule an eternal kingdom. God never said this to any angel. Angels are not those who would be the messianic king. And, and I want you to hear this. No mere man, no mere man can fit this description either. Only Jesus is fit to be the eternal messianic king. Only him. Yes, the father is first promising what will be inherited by Solomon, the son of David, and what Solomon would do to build a house. And we know that Solomon does build a temple, that Solomon does become this king that sits on the throne. But this covenant is primarily, did you hear this, primarily given to the son. And there are aspects of this covenant prophecy that can never apply to Solomon. Solomon can never be the son of God who sits on the throne forever. Never. Can't be that. Solomon looked like he might be the fulfillment of these promises in 1 Kings. If you read 1 Kings, it starts off, Solomon is ruling righteously. The foreign nations are coming and bringing tribute to him. He built a temple. Israel had peace. But then we read in 1 Kings, that Solomon, we read this ominous note after all this incredible glory of the kingdom of Solomon and his temple and his righteousness and his mediation on behalf of the people and the other kingdoms bringing tribute to him and the peace that Israel has. You think, he must be the seed of the woman. He must be the seed of Abraham. He must be the seed of David we've been waiting for. And then you read this ominous note, but Solomon loved many foreign women. And we realize that Solomon is not, he is demonstrably not the Messiah that we are looking for, nor that we need. Further, Solomon died. And his kingdom was split. Thus the Old Testament anticipated that this son of David had not yet come. The Old Testament, you read multiple prophecies after the death of Solomon, still waiting for the son of David who would sit on the throne forever. Solomon thus becomes a type of the Christ, the greater son of David. He is not ultimately the son of David of whom the father was speaking in 2 Samuel 7. He points to him, but he is not him. So then who is this son of David who inherits the eternal kingdom? Who is this son of David to whom the father says, he shall be to me a son and I shall be to him a father. And he shall sit on the throne forever. The answer is, the Hebrews is trying to get you to is Jesus. Jesus is the son. He is the son of David and the son of God. He is the eternally begotten son of God who became incarnate as a man as the son of David. 
for us and for our salvation. The eternally begotten Son is the one to whom the Father promised the kingdom. That's why a book like Matthew, when it starts off, says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then lays out his genealogy for you, demonstrating that he's the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, for whom we've been waiting. He is the eternally begotten son of God. That's why we read what we read about him in the gospels. With that said, look with me at Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one. I want you to see this language of the son of David in 2 Samuel 7 and the eternally begotten son of God in Psalm 2-7 coming together. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 31. Gabriel, the angels, come to the virgin and to Joseph to explain to them what's happening with this, if you will, conception of Mary Verse 31, we'll start reading there. And behold, there's the angel speaking to Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh or the Lord saves. Now look what it says. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That pointing to the Abrahamic promise. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Hear that? Do you see how this comes together at the incarnation of Christ? Comes together as baptism. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. As John the Baptist speaks of the one whose sandals he's not worthy to untie, the one who's coming after him, the one who has his winnowing fork in his hand, who will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And his winnowing fork's in his hand, and he's clearing his threshing floor, separating the chaff from the grain, storing the grain up in his barn and throwing the chaff in unquenchable fire. This one is coming, and he comes. And in Luke chapter 3, as he comes, John responds, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. He was anointed, which points us both to Isaiah 42, 1 and following, and Psalm 2. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. He is declared son at his incarnation. He's declared son at his baptism. Look to Luke chapter 9 when the apostles see him transfigured in getting a glimpse of his eternal glory. Chapter 9 and verse 28. Now about Luke 9 verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament witness is present for this event. They were taught, these two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. He was about to be crucified, resurrected, and ascend to the right hand of God. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came, became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men, stood, two men stood with him, who stood with him. And as the men were parting, from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
Notice the, the narrator's point of the obvious statement, not knowing what he said. He just didn't get what was happening here. Look, Moses and Elijah and Jesus here don't need any tents to sleep in. So look what he goes on to say. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, here's the Father speaking, this is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Jesus is the eternal Son of God and the Son of David. He is the one to whom God promised a kingdom, and that kingdom was delivered at His ascension when He took the right hand of the Father and was crowned as king. This was never spoken to the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. As much better as the name he has inherited is superior to, the, to theirs. He, listen, Jesus is the creator, God. The angels are creatures created by him. And that leads us to the third truth the author of Hebrews wants us to know about the Son, which demonstrates he's superior to the angels. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6. The third truth is this. Jesus was worshipped by the angels at the command of the Father. So the first truth I want you to grab hold of to keep in mind. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus was promised that as the incarnate mediator, when he took on humanity and fulfilled his role as Messiah, that he would be coronated as the eternal king. He was promised as the eternal begotten son, he was promised that he would, as the incarnate Christ, inherit an eternal kingdom. Thus, when he came as the incarnate Christ, God commanded the angels to worship him. So that's what I want to look at, this third movement. Jesus was worshipped by the angels at the command of the Father. Look at Hebrews 1.6. And again, and really again, that word again, Pauline in the Greek, should be taken with the word he says. And again he says, here's a third thing he's going to say. And again he says, or and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now this is an interesting verse. And if I made all the observations here that I could make, we would have to take a whole other sermon. But I don't want to do that because I want this whole argument to hold together. I just want to make a couple of quick observations. First, when is this command given to the angels? When is this command given to the angels? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says. In other words, this is speaking of the incarnation. The incarnation. When the firstborn comes into the world. Now the world here is speaking of this created world. When he brings him into the world, he says, that's the when. Second, who is this firstborn who's brought into the world? Well, the firstborn is the son, the one who is worthy of worship. This language of the firstborn is language that references the heir. What is the firstborn, what is he in a family in this period? He's the heir. It's not talking about birth order. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead in Colossians 1. Isn't it referring to birth order? Like he was born first, and then after that was Lucifer. I mean, there's a group who says that. We don't. That's a cult. But you understand the firstborn here is language about the fact that he is the heir. He is the one who inherits all things. He has the supremacy. The firstborn came into the world. The firstborn is the heir. He inherits the promises given to the son of David. Now this is taken from Psalm 89. I'm not going to turn there, but Psalm 89 is a promise, in Psalm 89 is a promise that David's son will be the firstborn. He will be the heir of the promises that God will keep. Third, what is the command given to the angels? So when is it given? 
when the firstborn comes into the world. Who is the firstborn? He's the son of David, the son of God, the heir of all things. And what's commanded to the angels? Let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is a citation that's taken from the Septuagint's translation of Deuteronomy 32.43. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. He sings that to Israel and teaches them to sing it. And it lays out really the history of Israel and what will come against Israel because of their sin. In other words, Moses is prophetically singing about, here's what, who God is, here's what he's given for us, here's how you will sin against him, and here's what will be said about you and happen to you on that day when you sin against him. He's singing that in advance. It's kind of a depressing song in one sense that ends hopefully, but he's singing Israel's history before it happens, and he teaches Israel to sing it. At the end of that song, in verse 43, comes this statement, let all God's angels worship him. Or let all gods bow down before him. In other words, let all the angels worship him or bow down before him. Lay prostrate before him. Who's the him? The him is Yahweh. The God who created them. The God who covenanted with them. The God who brought them out of Egypt. That's the him that the angels are to worship in Deuteronomy 32, 43. That's the him. Him. Yahweh. The Lord. Now, it's also quoting Psalm 97.7. It's a conflation of those two. In Psalm 97, the entirety of the psalm is singing about the God who is the creator. The Lord, the sovereign, the one who is king of the entirety of his creation. And as it sings about that, it says to the angels, let all God's angels, all his creatures, worship him. Who? The Lord, the creator, the sovereign of the universe. Let all God's angels worship him. Now we're told, we're told that when the firstborn, the promised son of David, the heir comes in the world, all God's angels are commanded to worship him, for we're being told he is the Lord. He is the creator. He is God. This word said in Deuteronomy 32, 43, let all God's angels worship him by Moses, this word said in 97.7 by the psalmist, let all God's angels worship him, we're being told by the author of Hebrews was the father commanding the angels to worship the son at his incarnation. No one was ever commanded to worship angels. No one. But angels are commanded to worship the son of David for he is the Son of God. And worship they did, didn't they? Jesus is born. And at the birth we hear that choir of angels break out in song. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. At his birth they worship him. Think of that. A baby. They worship him. Glory to God in the highest. So here is the sum of this argument today. Upon the fulfillment of his messianic office, Jesus has inherited the name above all names. For he is the son of David, the heir of all things, which is fitting because he is the eternally glorious son of God to whom these promises were made. And what's our application of all this? Turn with me back to Psalm 2 and we'll apply it from there. Psalm 2. We'll let David, who by the Holy Spirit originally heard this from the Father to the Son, this reported speech. We'll let him tell us the application. Psalm 2, verse 10, as David speaking as himself, here's how he applies it. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Listen, the application is quite simple here, isn't it? If you do not trust the Son, if you do not listen to him, you will be damned. You will bear the consequences for your own sin and eternal judgment. But if you look to the Son, if you kiss the Son, if you respect and trust the Son, you worship the Son, you will be blessed. You will be saved. You'll be forgiven your sins. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Son would be exalted in and through us, that we would look to him, that we would worship him as the one who is eternally begotten, your beloved, your chosen one, the one to whom you covenanted a kingdom as the incarnate Christ, the one who came and was born of Mary and of whom you declared even then, this is my beloved Son. The one who at his baptism, you publicly declared, this is my beloved Son. The one whom at the transfiguration, you again declared, this is my beloved Son. The one whom the angels, upon seeing his birth, declared glory to God in the highest. We pray that we would trust your Son, that we would meditate upon him, that we would look to him, that we would be in awe of him. For the sake of your name, we pray this. Amen.